Hello, this is Ted Przelski, and this is another episode of Words and Work. We're on the word side of things today. Uh, we've got Eric Asfog, who uh, lives down in Patagonia, teaches at the U of A, and I had a book out last year called When the Earth Had Two Moons, deals with planetary science and our history of of both the solar system and of our understanding of the solar system. A um, little bit uh, of a treat for me because uh, Eric was my teacher in high school for several classes. Uh, and uh, so this is a little bit special for me to done this episode. Um, so let's get started. So today we've got Eric Asfog, whose book is uh, When the Earth Had Two Moons, and this came out in 2019 or 2020. I'm trying to, because 2020 is difficult to remember. Yeah, yeah, the publication was 2019, but I think the first thing hit the stands in 2020. Okay, so um, first of all, before I get too far along, I uh, if I revert to calling you Mr. Asfog, you know why, but I need to explain to people that uh, you were actually uh, my teacher in high school. Um, it taught, I think, I, I think it was English Physics and Model UN. <laughs> was, uh, <laughs> it was a small school, so you got to have a lot yeah. of different roles. Um, and uh, actually, that's something you you talk about in your book a little bit about um your experiences as a high school teacher and and and, and what it did for you as a scientist because you could you talk a little bit about that oh of course i mean you know i i taught high school because i didn't know what i wanted to do because i you know like many of us i had so many different interests in college graduated from college sort of nothing had really congealed you know i wanted to be a physicist or a um, I, I think I, for a while I wanted to be a, a journalist. I would have been a horrible journalist because I'm pretty shy. And um, and then I ended up teaching high school. And then thanks to, I think it was John Menke, who uh, 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 had me teach Earth Sciences. And that was my first introduction to planetary science in a formal way. And so I got to teach you guys uh, about the Earth and rocks and I got to learn a lot about it because... I think for a small school, a lot of the teaching experience is, hey, we need somebody to teach whatever subject it happens to be. And I remember the whole last third of that book had all these really modern, for the time, pictures of uh, Venus and Mars and uh, just was really exciting to me. And then uh, it was actually uh, uh, John Mankey who told me, well, one of the best planetary science schools in the country is right here in Tucson. And that's kind of how I got into the stuff that I do today was through uh, through teaching you all. Yeah. So, um, you know, we've got um, sort of a, I, I, I call it an astronomy moment right now. I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of uh, uh, excitement around the, the Mars missions and Neil deGrasse Tyson's an actual celebrity right now. And, uh, you know, what, what, what are your reflections on, on, on that? I, I think it's one of the one things that everybody agrees is really interesting, 
no, not many people, you know, really seriously question that we should be spending a fair amount of money on on the the exciting stuff that's happening now. I mean, there's a lot of debate over whether things are worth ten billion dollars for a telescope and these kinds of questions, but. You know, when I see press coverage of the Mars Curiosity rover and the Mars uh, Perseverance rover now, you know, these are $2 billion rovers, but you don't see a whole lot of criticism of the cost. And I think it's because everybody kind of agrees that this is an important, uh, exciting human exercise uh, from kind of all all sides of the spectrum. And, and I just a lot of... Uh, a debate about whether we ought to be doing it. Um, you hear a little bit about this, but you know everybody loves planets. Everybody loves the search for life. Everybody likes to know where we came from. Everybody wants to know, um, you know, what's happening uh, with uh, uh, are we are we going to send humans back to the moon? And I just think it's this unifying uh, um, set of ideas that we can all think about. But I should tell you, you know, my uh, in-laws are very much on the opposite side of the political spectrum that I am, you know, I mean, complete opposite. And this is the one really fun thing we can all talk about together. And I think it's important to have those uh, besides like sports, maybe the other one. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, how about them cats? No. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah. So, could um, you know? It's uh, it's interesting to me because I I I, uh, I mean I guess there's always been. I mean when I was I was at the U of A. I mean I, I got to work at Stewart Observatory for a little bit and stuff. So it was you know it's kind of nice being around folks who were into this stuff. And, um, you know, I, I, when I was, um, uh, small, when I was younger, my mom worked for a Jesuit priest and he actually ran the Jesuit house in town. So there were always, so we'd have, we'd go to get togethers at that house and there were always Vatican astronomers there. I, I, I'm, oh. I'm sure you know, Chris Corbally, um, yeah, and, and he was one of those those guys that was there. So I mean, I, I think I I grew up a little bit guy, guy, guy Consolmagno, guy Consolmagno. Yeah, yeah, he came by a couple yeah. times too. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. He, he had some residences here in in, in Tucson uh, residencies. I mean, but um, and that was um, so. I'm, I'm with the book. I mean, could you? You know, it's not. It's 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 not written like uh, an, an, a regular. I mean, science book. I mean, there's a way that popular science books are written, and and yours is more of a. I'm not, I'm not even sure what to call it. It's not a story so much, but it's a it's a lot of different. I don't know. You describe it. <laughs> if you had well, to. what I, what I, what I handed to the to the publisher was actually a series of vignettes, like thirty little stories because I, I feel like with science you get to a point where you just don't know anymore and you can't really say anymore and then what do we do well we start over with a, a different story and you get to this point and it might be kind of a repetition of a of a of a different version of the story and so an example would be uh 
you know, particle physics in my mind, I'm, I'm not a particle physicist, is like one big, massive story that's been sort of steamrolling towards this great unknown. And to write a book about something like that, it takes a long time to go from the beginning to the end. There's kind of a linear narrative. And then you get into this uh, super strings and quarks and all that stuff. Uh, planetary science has a lot of things that just end in a mystery, like the origin of the moon. And you can start with uh, the basics about the moon and approach it in one direction. And then you get to the point where, oh, that doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make for a very linear narrative because it's not a very long narrative. It's not very, there are too many unknowns, like why it doesn't make sense. Uh, and so you can sort of approach it and, and then uh, kind of like teaching a kid something, you get to the point where, uh, or, or trying to train your kid to, to, you know, brush their teeth every night or something. You get to the point where it's like, okay, that was good enough. Let's start again the next day and try, you know, a little, a little more. And so there's the origin of the moon, uh, the origin of the Saturnian system, why planets are so diverse, um, you know, how many exoplanets are out there? Is our solar system very unique compared to the other systems? And all of those are sort of like vignettes. And the uh, editor, uh, he, you know, he liked what I, what I gave them, but uh, he wanted it to be kind of more of a, uh, a, a standard uh, narrative in a way. So what you ended up with was sort of a, um, not a square pegs in the round hole, but kind of this, uh, 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 I, I think in the end it was it was uh, still successful in my view of 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 bringing you on little rides and then and then starting on the next ride. And what I was hoping to get across in the book was this notion that science is never finished, and and sometimes when things get complicated, you just stop and then go back to the basics again and 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 start again. Um, books that are very linearly uh, descriptive of um, of what we know and how we know them, I think they miss a lot of the, uh, the, the wonderment that I was trying to convey in the book, which was that you can get on board at any point in this ride. And what I think is really beautiful about geology, planetary geology especially, uh, and astronomy and a lot of these uh, sciences is that you know, anyone pretty much at any age can contribute, you know, uh, to these to these fields, both intellectually, but also just in the fundamental gathering of the data. Um, you know, and I kind of long for the days of Pythagoras and uh, uh, an Eximander and, you know, just these people who could who could uh, come up with a, a, a sort of a, a simple demonstration of a fact that you could prove to anybody. And science has increasingly gotten to this point with uh, refined instrumentation and observations that a lot of what science does can't be conveyed to anybody, like the Higgs boson. You know, I'm still trying to figure out what that was all about, because that's not my bailiwick. Uh, but it was like this big deal. In planetary science, you can easily convey those things. And so tr trying to make it into bite-sized chunks. No, uh, you know, you said something that I was hoping to touch on in this is that, you know, I I've kind of considered astronomy almost the most populist of of sciences because 
you know, and, and, and some of it is, is just because I think of the, 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 the culture that's built into it, but just also the fact that there's all this data that's available out there that the folks in the astronomy community know that they'll never get around to all of it. So they're okay with other people looking at it. And I mean, that's kind of yeah. the, 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 the culture I've seen. And so I, I think folks outside of it might be surprised to learn how many uh, discoveries there have been that have been done by lay people. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that comes to mind was uh, a friend of mine, Mark Bowie, he uh, does patient astronomy. And so the, the New Horizons spacecraft that went past Pluto and took all the spectacular images of Pluto, it you know, was heading out into the Kuiper Belt, which is full of basically asteroids, you know, icy asteroids, but they're so far away you can't see them uh, other than as little tiny dots. And in order to send a spacecraft flying by them, you have to know exactly where that dot is, you know, much better than a, 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 a telescope can. And so what you try to do is find a point on the Earth where that, uh, that little tiny object, you know, about the size of downtown Tucson is, um, you know, 50 times farther from the sun than the Earth is, and it's got a star behind it. And so it's going to move in front of a star for a few minutes and kind of on the Earth of this faint star. Now, that shadow is going to be somewhere in Africa. If that was kind of the scenario here. Mm -hmm. There was... Uh, asteroid uh, or, or Kuiper Belt object MU69, and there was a star behind it that would be, uh, uh, it, would, it would wink out the star somewhere over Africa. So they went to Africa with 36 telescopes, fanned out all over these parts of Africa and got all the people involved, you know, in the villages and uh, the towns. And they, um, uh, uh, and the idea was to get a couple of winks of, of light. And then they could do the, try the, the, you know, earth, the object trying to get to, and the star behind it have to be in a straight line. And so you've nailed where it is. And that was, uh, those kinds of observations are very much in the amateur wheelhouse. Uh, same thing with exoplanets. If uh, <clears throat> exoplanets uh, orbiting a star, some of them will uh, go in front of the star and will make the starlight dim a little bit. And you don't see the planet, but you know it's there because the star dimmed a little bit. And there are people with backyard telescopes doing uh, transit uh, photometry, as they call it. And you get the exact moment when the planet went in front of the star, and that'll give you the planet's orbit. Even though you never saw the planet, you'll know its orbit. And from its orbit, you can get the planet's mass. And you can even find out if there's other planets in the system that haven't been discovered yet. And so I think that accessibility of astronomy is, um, is, is like, like geology, you know, it's very, uh, you know, anyone can do it. And I don't think everyone realizes how important their discoveries can be, even at that uh, sort of common level. Yeah. Um, and, and the other thing you, you, you've brought up a couple of times is uh, what's going on with exoplanets. I mean, when I, when, when, when you were my teacher, uh, I, I think it was uh, people were talking about, Barnard star and, a, and maybe a couple of others where there was evidence that, well, we think a, a planet might be there, but uh, who knows, you know, and now it's, I, I don't even know what the numbers are like now of confirmed exoplanets out there. Yeah. Five, 5,000. Yeah. 
Well, well now I know the number. <laughs> and in, in, in a year, it's not even, it's going to be twice that or three times that, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's really just limited to the number of telescopes you put into orbit because uh, the discoveries are kind of hard to do from the ground. Uh, the, way, the way they're done from orbit, uh, the, the Kepler Space Telescope, it just uh, basically it's just this big, huge camera CCD, you know, sitting there and it just stares at a field of stars. About I think there were like 130,000 stars, sort of like one star per pixel on the CCD pretty much. And it just monitored that. And if any of those pixels got a little bit dimmer for a while, it was like, oh, that's a planet passing in front of a star. And, uh, and then those would be followed up by astronomers on the ground, including amateur astronomers, to find out if those are real detections. And that's where the 5,000 number comes from, is those are confirmed. And um, what we're finding... You know, prior to that, like when when uh, we were both at, at St. Gregory, it was uh, kind of a career risk to like when I first got into grad school after I was done teaching there, uh, it was, you know, and people were sort of secretively researching this stuff because everybody wanted to be kind of the first. Nobody was telling people a lot what they were doing, but it was sort of a career risk to say you know, I'm, I'm sure there's planets around other stars. Uh, now it seems absurd to think that people could have once thought that. But at the time, and that was just in the late 80s, it was a bit of a career risk, uh, similar to there being water on Mars. Um, uh, what, ca what carved the channels of Mars? You know, everybody knows it's water. Um, at the time, it was back in the late 80s, it was a, a scientific, uh, not a career killer necessarily, but a, a scientific uh, career risk to say that you were sure this was water, uh, because science is a very skeptical place. Well, I, I wonder too, though, if that was a reaction to Percival Lowell finding, I mean, you know, if, I mean, for yeah. some reason, seeing all kinds of, you know, these great civilizations up there that carved these canals and people might have been going, yeah, I don't want to look like that guy, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, there was that and there was the Viking experiments in the in the 70s, which were going to find life on Mars and, uh, and uh, the search for life stuff was kind of a bust and they found it to be bone dry. Science, does, you know, science is just like any human endeavor. It uh, follows the pack. And if the pack of people think a certain way, uh, you know, people tend to sort of uh, 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 align with that. And so the Vi prior to the Viking landers on Mars, it was uh, thought, like you were saying, there's canals, there's water, there could be bugs. Just scrape the dirt on the top and put it in a Petri dish and you'll see some bubbles indicating that there's organisms. And then they found that there was nothing. And then it, the pendulum just swung the complete other way. And it was like, oh, Mars is basically just like the moon. It's bone dry. There might be a few grams of water here and there, but nothing that could support life. And now we've swung the other way so far that uh, the bulk of the NASA budget now is trying to bring samples back from Mars, which I think is a bit of a mistake. I think there's other things that are you know, equally uh, scientifically significant in the search for life. Um, uh, when I talked to you on the phone this morning, you talked about a uh, something you're involved with um, for uh, Hispanic students um, that are in engineering. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, we, we started this, uh, I, I think it was two years ago, University of Arizona became an HSI, a Hispanic serving institution, which I think is like 25% of your student body is Hispanic, I think is kind of what the metric is. But uh, that doesn't percolate upwards into the academics. Uh, you know, uh, most of the science departments don't have any Hispanic faculty, even though we're, uh, you know, a majority Hispanic uh, uh, community or, uh, you know, uh, uh, one of the major fractions of Tucson's population. And so, uh, and then generally in NASA, there's this recognition that the, the scientific and the engineering workforce is mostly, you know, white men. And so there's been this uh, uh, push to change that. And so there's a program called the Minority Undergraduate Research Education Program, uh, MIRAP, that NASA funds. And we applied and, uh, you know, we got selected. Uh, I'm the science uh, co-investigator for that. And so I um, give lectures, uh, mentor some of the student research teams. And it's really targeting, you know, any, anybody can be part of this program, uh, but we try to have a, you know, really diverse, uh, gender diverse and, and uh, ethnically diverse, you know, population of students that's kind of more representative. And, and the thing that I like about it is looking back on the students who I've taught over the years, uh, the ones who ended up really uh, startling me in terms of their uh, academic uh, uh, potential and where they ended up going, you know, were the ones who weren't like at the very top of the list uh, coming into to, uh, to the academic program, the best GPA, the, the, you know, perfect grades and all that stuff. It was usually the ones who were about 20, 20th down on a list of 100. And that's sort of, for me, kind of the sweet spot because these are students who have, um, they've had to work, they've had to, uh, they might be the first in their uh, families to go to college or to go to grad school in some, in some cases. And, um, and, and, and uh, kind of given the opportunities, uh, tend to just do a lot more creative things has, has been my experience. One of the one of the things that I regretted when so I I used to teach at a school in a very very uh, high cost of living area, uh, as and the tuition kept going up and the cost of living kept going up, until uh, one year I realized that none of my students uh, worked, you know, had jobs, and that had changed from about half of my students having jobs to suddenly none of them had jobs because the, what's a job going to do for you? when tuition's 50,000 bucks or whatever. And, um, you know, the cars were getting nicer and I, I can't ding any of these, uh, these people, but the, the sense of uh, individual effort that was required was quite a bit, uh, uh, quite a bit different. I, I found, I found myself doing a lot more handholding, doing a lot more taking care of, of, of students who, who needed things uh, at some point. So, for me, it's a really interesting, uh, a couple of mixed uh, things going on. One, I get to work with a much more diverse group of students, uh, but also I'm working a lot more with engineering students uh, as opposed to those just in the sciences. And uh, for me, one thing that I've appreciated about engineering is that it's a, a very teamwork-based academics. 
students in engineering programs tend to work in, in teams starting from their freshman year on major projects that you get graded on. And uh, in the sciences, you tend to sort of do the homework yourself. You take a test by yourself. You do your final exam by yourself. You do your final project, maybe with a group. But if you work with a group as a professor, you, you end up having to like figure out like some conflicts because they're not used to doing that. And uh, I just like the, the experience. And so all the students in this program are all working together on a spacecraft uh, project uh, that's called AOSAT. And we're going to build a spacecraft about the size of a loaf of bread that's going to reproduce the environment of an asteroid surface uh, inside of the spacecraft and kind of spin to get sort of an asteroid type gravity. And so they're all, you know, some are part of the payload team, some are the electronics experts. And I've gotten this great appreciation of the power of, of human uh, hierarchical collaborative work where, um, and there's something kind of magical about doing it right, where it's a hierarchical, yet the person at the top isn't the most valued member. It's just that's their role in, in this uh, structure. So, so I've, I've had a great, uh, we're, we're just in our first year, but it's a big, uh, one, of the, one of the highlights of my academic life, for sure. Okay. Well, uh, I can't let a planetary scientist go without asking about Pluto, because people will get on me for not asking. Where did you come down in that controversy? Well, Pluto's a planet. <laughs> uh, you know, there, there's no doubt in my mind. Uh, uh, but I, I mean, I, I get where they were coming from. It's like if, if, if Pluto's a planet, Makemake, I don't know if you've heard of Makemake, but Makemake is a planet. Uh, Eris is a planet. And so you have these other objects that are the size of Pluto. Um, I thought it was a little bit, I think the way the process proceeded was uh, sort of the pinnacle of kind of scientific arrogance where uh, you had the International Astronomical Union. They all met uh, 600 people uh, at, at a meeting. You know, it, it wasn't kind of like a bunch of people in powdered wigs and robes and stuff. It was just people at a meeting deciding what they thought a planet should be. And they felt like Pluto is, it's, you know, you can say it's part of Neptune because Neptune orbits the sun tw uh, three times for every two times Pluto orbits and they're dynamically connected. And, and they were bothered by the fact that there'd be more planets than Pluto if you wanted to let this be a, a planet. Uh, but, but you can't just go and do that to people. You can't just go saying, you know, uh, we met in this room in, in, uh, I think it was in uh, Vienna. And, I, I thought it was uh, we met Prague, the, wasn't it? it? Oh, that's right. It was Prague. Yeah. yeah. So we, we met at this, uh, you know, kind of exclusive conference and we just decided that this isn't a planet. Uh, I, 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 I think, um, you know, by, by that measure, uh, you'd, you, you might find a, uh, an earth, you might actually find a habitable planet orbiting some other star system that happens to have a big Jupiter like planet. Uh, 
dominating that planet's orbit, just like Neptune dominates Pluto's orbit. And it might have people on it. And you'd, you'd say, well, sorry, you're not a planet. I, I, don't, I don't think that's going to work. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Eric. Uh, and uh, Eric will actually be doing a reading for the National Writers Union Tucson chapter in May. So check the Facebook page for details. Uh, Words and Work is a presentation of the National Writers Union Tucson chapter and Downtown Radio. Thank you all very much and uh, hear from you soon.